Good morning, WTOB listeners. This is Dylan Greenwood. This is Attorney Harold Eustache. Uh, from Greenwood Law, and we're here to present to you for the record with Greenwood Law. Uh, we just want to say thank you to all of our listeners out there for tuning in each week. Uh, we've been getting a lot of positive feedback. It's always nice to hear that, so thank you so much. And uh, today we're here to talk about an issue uh, that pops up this time of the year with greater frequency, and that is stuff uh, surrounding drunk driving, DWIs, DUIs. Uh, there are some people out there who think that there's a difference between a DUI and a DWI. There's not. Uh, just it's, this, it's all the same here in North mm -hmm. Carolina. Uh, but what we're going to do today is really just run down what this is. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there with what constitutes a DWI and what doesn't. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what's wrapped up into uh, an offense for drunk driving and part of that is the fact that a DWI is something called a an implied consent law which is a special type of law that we have um, North Carolina specifically other states uh, have implied consent as well but in North Carolina they define a few specific traffic laws as being implied consent we're gonna go through what that is and then we're gonna break down the DWI statute um, and really kind of take the, the law school approach of just what these different things mean mm -hmm. and, and try to give you guys some information out there about the sometimes confusing law. Right, and just like anything else in law school, like driving can mean a lot of things. So it'll be fun to go through some of that. Harold, that's just the law. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you could define anything to mean almost anything in the right. law. Uh, so you're exactly right. But let's start off with implied consent. And that is something that is very loaded when it comes mm -hmm. to these particular laws and has a great impact on drivers. So here, what exactly is implied consent? Implied consent, every driver in North Carolina has essentially given implied consent um, by participating in driving itself on, on the roads of the state. Um, so uh, when you drive, uh, it's been determined that you've given consent to a chemical test if uh, if there's been probable cause found and you've given consent to a chemical test by a chemical analyst who is a law enforcement officer and that chemical test can come by way of blood uh, breath or urine um, and so a lot of times people you know don't know that um, they have this consent that they've given and uh, if they refuse to give the chemical analysis um, uh, when probable cause has been found, their driving privileges can be revoked for up to a year. Um, it's so possible to get those back after six months uh, from a refusal, but yeah, you're exactly right. There's a process to it, yeah, and it's pos possible to get it back, but there's a process to it like anything else. and um, it, it does stun some people sometimes because even if, even if they were found, let's say they were arrested for a DWI and later that DWI was dismissed, for whatever reason, um, if they were if they were to refuse, um, the refusal is different than the rest of the case. It is, you've uh, the state of North Carolina has, has deemed that you've given consent to uh, to this chemical test, and they're refusing your license based. I mean, sorry, they're uh, revoking your license based on a refusal. Um, so basically, to clarify, you by having a driver's license, mm -hmm. you've given this implied consent. 
and you having that little card, mm -hmm. you being able to be out on the road. Uh, and so you've given your consent to have this test done, uh, whether it's a blood test, a breath test, or a urine test. And all of those have been assessed to be some form of an invasion into your body. It is a search. Right. And so there's some constitutional issues with that. I know the courts have... They have. have and it has been assessed uh, to see whether or not implied consent is actually legitimate or constitutional. And our courts have determined that it is. Um, mainly because that although it is a test or a search as it would fall under the definition of our Fourth Amendment against unreasonable searches and seizures, all of our constitutional rights are weighed against societal factors. And if there's a greater societal need, then sometimes it's determined that these rights can be circumvented. And basically the courts even got around that to some degree when they came back and they said that, um, listen, driving isn't a right. It's not a right at all, it's a privilege. Um, so even when like, let's say you were to lose your driver's license, whether it be from a DWI, points, high speed case or whatever else, and you go to get your driving privileges restored, it is literally called going to get a mm -hmm. driving privilege. So you're getting that privilege back. You're not getting your full license back, but you're getting the privilege to drive back. Of course, I've said because it is a privilege, then states can do things to regulate it. And one of these forms of regulation is implied consent. Now, to clarify, you know, implied consent, that consent can be retracted at any time. You do have that right, but you get these harsh penalties for it. So that's a calculated thing that if you're ever in that position, you've got to try to figure out. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were to withdraw that right, does it necessarily mean that a, a law enforcement officer can't get a blood, urine, or breath result from you? No, it doesn't. I mean, the law enforcement officer can uh, go to a judge and get a get a search warrant. Um, again, as Dylan said, this is a search or seizure uh, on your person, and so they would need a search warrant, which they can get to obtain blood or breath or urine um, to still get that sample anyway, even if you refused. And a lot of times the way that they're coming up with the evidence to figure out if they have what's called probable cause to support that is by their interaction with you at, during the traffic mm -hmm. stop or whatever the initial encounter is. You know, they're looking to see uh, how well you keep your balance, what you smell like, how mm -hmm. you're talking, performance of field sobriety test and we can and we probably will do a whole uh, yeah, section on field sobriety tests that could take mm -hmm. hours to talk about uh, when it gets down to it but every single one of those pieces of information becomes evidence in determining that probable cause right. to determine whether or not one of these tests can and should be done against you and that um, is an interesting thing because based off that result a lot of times that's one of the ways that you can determine actually what impairment is. But impairment alone, that's not the only element of no. uh, the DWI statute, is it? No. So for DWIs, there are essentially four elements um, that make a DWI. So uh, it's driving uh, a vehicle on a public vehicular area, which we'll get into what that is, um, while impaired. So 
all four of those elements, as we call them, have to be satisfied in order, beyond a reasonable doubt, in order for a person to be convicted of a DWI. So the first element um, is driving. And Harold, that means you've got to be behind be, the wheel yeah. driving, right? We wish it meant that, but it doesn't. And so don't let that term fool you. The courts have said that driving and operating are synonymous. And so really, even though this, the statute says driving and the term for the crime is called driving while impaired, it's really operating. And the courts have determined that operating means you have dominion and control over a vehicle. Um, so just to parse that out, if you obviously are behind the wheel of a vehicle, you know, the vehicle's on, foot is on the gas and you're going down the road, clearly that's driving. But then there's, there's lots of other times when it can be not as, not as obvious. Okay, so hold up. So you're telling me it doesn't have to be foot on the pedal, you're pressing the gas, you're moving this car between your feet on the pedals and your hands on the wheel. It's more than that. It's more than that. So, for example, if, you know, somebody is leaving a bar at 2 a.m. and they think, well, I'm not going to drive home. I've maybe had too much to drink. I'm going to go in my car. It's 30 degrees outside. I'm going to sit in the driver's seat, start crank the engine up, and turn the heater on. And, they, and an officer knocks on their window an hour later. The courts have determined that, as op, that is operating the motor vehicle. Okay, so what, what about this? What if you're, um, you know, you just said that you turned the car on. What if the car's battery died, so the car's not going to start, you put the car in neutral and you're pushing it down the road? That is also deemed to have been operating a motor vehicle. Even if the vehicle's off, but you are pushing it, you have dominion and control over the vehicle, and you can get a DWI for pushing that vehicle while the vehicle's off, um, just pushing it down the road. So, okay. So I, I, I'm sure you know, a lot of people are going, well, that's a really broad definition. What if, you know, like the scenario that you had where somebody's thinking they're doing the right thing by not getting out on the road? they're getting in their car, they might be cold, so they turn the car on. Uh, does it matter their location or proximity within the car as to whether or not that would constitute operating or driving the vehicle? I think it would. It would matter um, their proximity to the wheel of the car. If they are far enough away from uh, the part of the car that controls the vehicle, which is the pedals and the wheel, um, so as that they cannot really assert any uh, control over the vehicle, then it would be tough for a court to say that they're operating that vehicle or could operate that vehicle. Well, I think maybe some of our listeners out there might be going, well, it's, it's obvious how the car got started. What do you mean you don't know this person was the one, one that turned the key in the ignition, turned it on, and then was the one to crawl in the back seat? But what it gets down to is that every single one of these elements, the state of North Carolina has to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And if no one observed that uh, being cranked, if no one observed that person being in the front seat, all they observed was someone being in the back seat 
and the individual did not make statements to law enforcement uh, condemning themselves. That's part of the Greenwood Law Bill of Rights. You know, I will not make statements to law enforcement. You know, you don't need to do their job for them necessarily. So, you know, what's implicit in that is that the state of North Carolina is going to have a hard time potentially proving who actually turned the key. Right. Because they don't have a witness. Right. And so, and and our experience driving of these four elements is is the most is the element that's litigated the most. Um, that's tends to be the one um, where cases um, hinge on. A lot of a lot of times they happen um, in accidents, in single vehicle accidents, or or any kind of accident where by the time that law enforcement is there, um, somebody is. The, far away from the vehicle and there's there's no one at the vehicle no one's seen that anybody driving that vehicle even though it's obviously in an accident so when you're when the state has to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt there is a standard there to really prove that whoever is being accused of this was actually driving that vehicle so all right we've gone through this what is driving and operating is is certainly broader than what the definition on its face would be, mo what most people right. think of driving. Surely vehicle is narrowly tailored, right? It's, it's a car, it's a truck, it's, you know, anything that you see out on the highway. It, it's just those things, right? Unfortunately, it's not just those things. It is quite a bit more than that. Um, How much and more, Harold? It is any, any motive, any any instrument that's a mode of travel that is essentially not using human power except for a bicycle. Bicycle has been determined, even though it uses human power in the statute, has been determined as a, as a vehicle for the definition um, of, a motor, of, of a vehicle for DWI. So you can get, you can, again, be leaving the bar at 2 a.m. thinking, I'm not gonna drive home, I'm gonna ride my bike home. Well, you get on that bike, that bike is deemed a vehicle, just like just like a car. And if you're impaired, and you know, get pulled over, that would be a DWI. And we have seen DWIs oh, yeah. on bikes. Um, yeah, we absolutely have. Um, what about a lawnmower? A riding lawnmower is a vehicle. Um, now, the issue a lot of times with lawnmowers is is it on a public vehicular area? Right. If it's on a lawn, that wouldn't be. But if it is driving down a road. Uh, it, it would be a vehicle uh, under the definition of Chapter 20. And in fact, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of in the same mode as, as bicycles and all that, they're different from what you would normally think of. Uh, it's been, there's been an uptick lately on DWIs associated with electronic scooters. Right. So, you know, like Lime or whatever else, you know, you, you think you're getting on the scooter, you're not really getting really out on the road, you're probably not going too far. You hop on it. Well, you know what? You can get a DWI while on the scooter. And these scooters are all in downtown area and urban areas all over. Yeah. And a lot of times people are using them just to kind of go downtown, and they're thinking, you know, that's a safe way to travel, mm -hmm. and it's, it could be precarious for them. Absolutely. Um, some other examples are golf carts. could be a vehicle, a farm tractor, um, certain types of mopeds. Um, so there's there, it, it's very broad what... A vehicle can be, um, you know, really the things that aren't vehicles, and there's some case law on it is horses. Um, for a while, though, they were. For a while, they were. 
Um, actually, vehicles too, so you could get a DWI on a horse, um, which is, you know, I'm sure it makes for an interesting story, but um, at this point, they're not. Electric wheelchairs are not. Um, the assisted, assisted wheelchairs for people uh, that need that assistance, those are not um, vehicles. But again, you know, the definition is broad so that, you know, broad enough so that even things that maybe aren't necessarily listed at this point could be deemed a vehicle or something else that is invented later could be deemed a vehicle. Right. I find it really interesting parsing out what is a vehicle personally, yeah. that bicycles are considered vehicles, but yet skateboards and rollerblades are not. Right. Because it doesn't seem all that far off, it except doesn't. for a couple of gears uh, on a bike. I mean, granted, maybe more than a couple, but you know, when it gets down to it, you're still pushing something under your own volition uh, to make it move or to make you move faster. Uh, but yet the law has parsed that out so finely. Right. And it just, to me, it, it doesn't make and sense. And that's one that a lot of people don't know. We have a lot of bike riders, I mean, obviously, and in many towns around here, and, and that's, that's an important one for people to, to know about during the holidays. So the well, next area would be uh, public vehicular areas, which is, you know, an interesting carve out because what North Carolina has done and a lot of other Chapter 20 laws um, chapter 20 is, are the laws that um, that govern traffic violations in North Carolina. It's that, you know it's pretty narrow. It's either highways and streets, but for for DWIs, it's public vehicular areas. So can you explain what those are? It is, and this is something that it really is carved out specifically for DWIs. Uh, normally, let's say you're running, uh, you're accused of running a stop sign. Uh, the that definition of that would be that you need to be on a public highway or street. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, somebody's parking lot is not necessarily a public highway or street. That's why, you know, if you ever go to Target, for instance, and you see all the stop signs, like outside of every single Target that they put up in the parking lot, it's very nice of you to abide by those <laughs> and probably, you know, helps the general flow of traffic and prevents accidents. But when it gets down to it, it's not on a public highway or street. Right. So it's not like you can get a ticket for it. Right. Uh, however, DWI would be different. You can get a DWI in the parking lot of Target. You can get a DWI in anywhere, basically, that the public has access to take their vehicles. And it is incredibly broad as to what that is. Uh, basically, the only area that you could drive on and not get a DWI is private property. So technically speaking, let's say you had like 20 acres of land and uh, you got drunk, you could hop in your truck and drive all around your land, your personal land. That's not necessarily going to be a DWI. Now, if you get out on any of like a state easement, you get out on, you know, to the curtilage of the highway, all of a sudden that could be an issue. But your land, it's your land. And the, the courts have said the only way that if it's on private property that it could be deemed a public vehicular area is if uh, the, the owner of that property uh, deems it so, essentially. So let's say you had that 20-acre piece of land and you had an easement that went through um, the land so that people could travel across it, across it, across it, 
and you named you know that that street and it was known to the public that people could use it even though it was your land that would be a public vehicular area but it would have to be uh, designated that way by the owner mm -hmm. um, of that land but again you know public vehicular areas are basically anywhere even um, e even private clubs or private parking lots or a private parking deck that's only open to, you know, the executive. I mean, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. it, it's still going to be a, a, a PVA. Correct. So. so Herald of all of these elements, which we've figured out by now that they are not on their face the definitions that most people would think they would be. Mm -hmm. um, impairment, the fourth element of a DWI, is really the only element that is narrowly defined as to what it is and it's one of three things correct it is it's one of three things and um the first one that it is is uh, while statutes essentially while under the influence of an impairing substance and what that means is what we call appreciable impairment appreciable simply means noticeable so the statute says that if uh, someone can deem you noticeably impaired, you, you could be convicted of a DWI. So an example of that would be if an officer was to encounter someone that's a driver and, and let's say they, they satisfy the other elements, you know, they're driving a vehicle on a public vehicular area, but um, it isn't determined what the impairing substance is or, or what exactly is going on with the person, but this officer determines that the person is noticeably impaired. They're stumbling and all the sort of um, the, the attributes that we um, associate with impairment. That person could be convicted of a DWI. Now, in these sorts of trials, it does become this standard of this subjective standard about what is noticeable and what isn't. And so these, th when you do have issues of appreciable impairment, they are uh, sometimes hard for the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. They, they can be, and honestly, every decision maker in, in the courtroom, uh, it's really a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone has something different they look for to figure out what is appreciably impaired. And what you touched on, I think, is exactly right. Most commonly, these cases involve some other impairing substance besides alcohol. Usually, it's a controlled substance. Um, although, there are a decent amount of alcohol-related mm -hmm. cases yeah. that are looked at for appreciable impairment uh, because there can be a number of factors that contribute to your overall impairment. Right. And BAC is just one of them. Right. So we can see people that have a blood alcohol content, blood, al blood alcohol content, you know, 0 0.03, but they also have, have marijuana. They may have um, uh, Adderall or some other impairing substance. So that 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 mix together can can sometimes go impairment. The second um, uh, element is a kind of a per se impairment, um, and that is uh, blood alcohol content above 0.08. 0.08 or above. Um, so if you uh, have a breath test, a urine test, or a blood sample, and it is reads at over 0.08, that is deemed per se impairment um, at that point. And then the third way in which you can be deemed to be impaired is any amount of a Schedule One controlled substance or that substance's metabolite in your system. 
And a Schedule One, most oftentimes people know it uh, as heroin, uh, opiates, MDMA, uh, ecstasy, those type things are Schedule One uh, controlled substances that if you have any of it in your system at all, you're uh, automatically considered to be impaired. And so that's what um, we see when we're looking at those four. And you know, when we're breaking down one of these cases, uh, we're looking at each one of those elements to see whether or not the facts of the case truly um, mold themselves to what the law says. Mm -hmm. And if they can't, then you know, what we're trying to do is uh, make sure that the state uh, is holding someone to its burden of proof beyond reasonable doubt and that these things are brought up uh, in front of a court of law so that these factors are considered. And, um, you know, because when it gets down to it, uh, driving while impaired is a big issue. It leads to a lot of safety concerns. Uh, it's something that you, know, you absolutely understand why there's a law against it. But at the same time, the legislature has defined what exactly constitutes driving while impaired and so because of that um, you've got to make sure that every specific scenario follows that definition wtob listeners thank you for joining us today here on for the record with greenwood law and don't forget to join us next sunday at 10 30 a.m when we're going to take the opportunity to talk about uh, the first step act and this was an act that it, there's a federal version and mm -hmm. a state version the federal version was signed into law back in 2018 by President Trump, and it really affected the way in which um, federal sentences were calculated and credit for uh, good behavior was calculated. And so we'll go into all of that. And then North Carolina this summer followed it up with its own version of the First Step Act. And this is something that it was big news for first generally first time drug offenders who are charged with serious trafficking offenses uh, but might have the ability to get a reduced sentence or initiate some version of a safety valve to get a lower sentence because uh, drug trafficking at times depending on the substance can be easy to slip into a lot mm -hmm. easier than what people Good may think, believe yeah. and before we go uh, let's not forget the greenwood law bill of rights First, I will not represent myself in court. Uh, second, I will not do law enforcement's job for them. Third, I will not make statements when stopped by law enforcement. Fourth, I will not consent to searches when asked by law enforcement. Five, I will not be my own star witness for the prosecution. Remember everyone that it's not a crime to know your rights and assert them. Stay informed, stay safe. This is For the Record with Greenwood Law, signing off. <laughs>